0: stories big guests the big picture afternoons with rob Breckenridge. weekdays twelve thirty to 3 seven seventy chqr here we go welcome to this hour of the program rob Breckenridge with you on this wednesday afternoon thanks for being with us we have got a lot to get to in this hour your phone calls included i want to begin in this hour though the latest thought on the situation in ukraine we had a russian airstrike today have destroyed a maternity and children's hospital in the city of uh, Mariupol. So a really concerning escalation, I guess, as we enter the third week of this conflict. What Putin might be prepared to do to try to salvage some victory, obviously, we should be concerned. At the same time, Ukrainian resistance has given us some hope for what this could be, what could come out of this. As our next guest wrote this week, there is no going back. We know that. There's no going back to how things were before this. But what the future holds, I suppose, is still yet to be written. Uh, Much more at greatpower.us. Molly McHugh is lead writer at greatpower.us, writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Molly, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, Yeah, some awful images, uh, as mentioned, uh, coming out today, this uh, airstrike on, on this hospital What does this portend in terms of how far Putin's prepared to go, what what he's prepared to do here?
1: I think what we see so far, or at least in this sort of second phase, is very much mirroring um, the types of attacks that we've seen Russia conduct in Syria and in Chechnya. The sort of purposeful targeting of civilian infrastructure, to kind of inflict terror on civilian populations, to try to wear down uh, resolve in the population uh, and in the government, um, and to try to get them to sort of surrender or decide that the fight isn't worth it. Um, it it's all war crimes, and I think we should be very clear on that. Um, but it is what Russia has gotten away with doing uh, for a long time.
0: You know, even in areas where Russia as asserted control, we see the images of defiance and just utter contempt from, from Ukrainian citizens. They're not, they're not cowed, they're not, they're not acquiescing. I mean, how can Vladimir Putin ever hope to, to, to conquer, to rule these people?
1: I think this has been one of the most fascinating aspects of what we've seen so far, not only the Ukrainian resolve and sort of the nationwide will to resist and to fight, um, but how wrong... The russians got this and i'm sure you've heard lots of speculation on this you know is it because putin's so isolated is it because no one can tell him what is reality is it because they didn't actually know are they all reading their own press releases too much and it's just so fascinating that if they had not seen over the last years of fighting as russia had been invading eastern ukraine already if they had not seen that uh, already in the population was this attitude of essentially, you know, Russian warship go f yourself. Um, if if they did not know this was the the will in the population that they're sick of this that this is hardened national identity uh, in a positive way, that, that Ukrainians believe in their national project and their history, um, then they really missed a lot in terms of their war planning. And I think it's just, um, there's a lot of questions about this, but all it would take is walking into Kiev, sitting in a bar and listening to 10 people talk for half an hour, and you would understand that this was the reality. So that they miss this so badly, I think, speaks to extremely bad planning and calculus. And I think this is where it Gets into what you were discussing at the beginning, which is, but now what? Like, how how yeah. bad will this get if they take a big risk to try to solve this terrible problem? Um, and I think that's the the sort of twenty gazillion dollar question at this point. Well, let's talk
0: about, you know, kind of where we're at already here. And, as, you know, you wrote in part one uh, of your piece this week, a three-piece uh, part, that, you know, we are kind of past the point of no return here. And I don't know if that was at the moment of the invasion or, you know, what's happened since then. But, you know, you, you make the case that there's no going back to how it was before. There's no going back to, to sort of pre-invasion relations or even illusions uh, about, uh, you know, dealing with, with Vladimir Putin. What what for you represents kind of the, the point of no return here?
1: I think uh, certainly the the attempt at full-scale war against Ukraine. But within the first 36 hours, for sure, it was clear that uh, you know this is a, a total war, a war of hostility against Ukraine, and very much as President Zelensky has said, to erase Ukraine, to erase its people, to erase its identity. And you see this in the way that they're targeting historical sites and cultural centers, targeting the civilian population. Um, and I think if we allow this to happen and still think that there is a way to put Putin back in some kind of box where we can go back to the kabuki negotiations and the pretend it's all OK situation, um, then everything that we are doesn't mean anything anymore. And I think that it was necessary for me to write this piece because you already hear these types of Everybody just wants it to go away. Like, how do we make this end? How do we put it back? And there is no putting it back. It's, it's going to be something new now. I think um, I'm out in, in Lithuania now. Um, I think in Europe, you feel this in a much more immediate way because it is the sort of visceral reaction to the images of cities being bombarded, how it sort of pulls on World War II memories out here. Um, it's different for Americans and for Canadians. You know, we're farther away. We participated in the war, but our cities were not exploded. Um, And I think that just understanding that the reality in Europe has shifted significantly uh, in a way that I think none of us had expected for a long time. Um, And I think what we have seen in Ukraine is just too much and too horrific to even pretend like there's going to be some kind of normal with Putin after this. Um, and I think that requires extremely creative thinking that will challenge all of us as an alliance as, as and as individual nations. Extremely challenging thinking about what that relationship now looks like. What measures are we willing to take? Uh, if Russia escalates, what are we willing to do to prevent that escalation from happening? Um, there's a lot that we need to get together and decide on this and not just kind of wait and see how it plays out, because every day that we're waiting and seeing is Ukrainian lives that are being sacrificed to this fight.
0: Right, and, and it, it truly is a sacrifice, as you argue. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was not inevitable that you know, this would go this way. The Russian stumbles were not inevitable. If, if this Ukrainian resistance had, had wilted or folded, and you know Russia had taken Kyiv by now, it might be a, an entirely different situation. And part of the point you make this week is that the Ukrainians have created an opening here for us, right? And and we we shouldn't forsake
1: this opportunity. So, what what is that opportunity, as you see it? Well, and and created an opportunity for themselves, and I think that's yeah. clearly what was an aspect of their planning. Was not how do we survive this a little bit? It was the only way for us to survive this is to win it, and that is, of course, what. What strategy in war is supposed to be about, is what is your plan for success, not how do you make it hurt the least. Mm -hmm. Um, But the fact that they actually were focused on this, um, I think, shocked everyone. No one uh, expected them to do this well. Um, But I think what you also see from them is not just the very clear-eyed, extremely uh, cutting planning about what this war needs to look like for them, which was Mm -hmm. You need to fight hard, fast at the beginning and show everybody else in NATO and in the West that there is an army here, that there is a resistance here for them to support or they would none of those weapons that have come since the first you know bullet would have gone if it seemed as if there was nothing to send it to, so that was sort of their first mission was to show we are here, we are not giving up, we will not surrender, so you better help us fight and I think that has been a big success for them. I think the other aspect they 're now trying to get us to see is that this you know again they 're still not collapsing, the sort of doom predictions of it 'll be three days it 'll be five days, right. it 'll be ten days, like all of those have been wrong. Um, The Russians have not really achieved any strategic objectives uh, in terms of territory or or strategic targets. And I think what you see from the Ukrainians is this, um, what could be after this if you help us defeat Putin here? And this real chance for... A better future for all of us where there's not this hard line at the edge of Europe that there is an expanding free world that has a revitalized Ukraine as sort of a center of innovation and democracy. Um, They're really trying to get us to see this and you see it in their actions and how they are treating Russian soldiers and how they are treating POWs and how they are constantly trying to message uh, to the Russian and the Belarusian people, you know, we have no beef with you. Like, we don't want this stupid war either. Like, you should all just quit fighting. But they're trying to create this opening for reconciliation after Putin's war is done. Um, And I think all of that shows very clear-eyed planning um, for not only how you can get through this conflict, but then what comes after, and I think all of us need to take a cue from what we see from the Ukrainians.
0: Right, and there's a long way to go, and we're we're a long way from from mission accomplished here, as much as we've supported sure. Ukraine, uh, as much as we really tightened the the economic vice grip on, on Russia, and you know there, there's going to be considerable economic fallout for for average Russians, but. That doesn't represent success yet, as you say, that that we still need to do more. What can we do additionally now in the short term to ensure that things continue to unfold as we hope they do?
1: Well, I think the first thing, especially for everyone who doesn't want to consider any possible military option, is just if there's any sanctions you have left in the can, now is the time to apply them. If you want to to completely topple the Russian economy to show you cannot fight wars this way anymore— um, it's now. Uh, and I think the the importance of doing that is not just that it's clear that for once the extent of the measures is enough that it's working, um, but you currently have this kind of voluntary self-sanctioning happening, right? Like all these companies uh, are fleeing Russia, cutting deals, um, leaving business interests behind to avoid reputational risk partially and also because they know it's the right thing to do. Um, and that's that won't be sustainable in the long term. They will not want to wait and see. They will want to know when they can get back to uh, investments and regular business. And um, so I think you have this kind of groundswell on the economic side. That Like now is the time to apply maximum pressure if you hope that, you know, all the economic stuff can make the Russians stop fighting because they realize it's not sustainable. And by that I mean, you know, the people closest to Putin and Putin himself. But I think there also then needs to be uh, – a very a much more aggressive approach to how we are considering arming the Ukrainians. Um, they are willing to do the fighting for the most part. Uh, they need stuff to do it. We need to make sure that they're getting a consistent pipeline of what they need. Um, and I think we need to really consider their, uh, you know, more elevated requests in terms of additional fighter jets, um, additional drones, uh, new different kinds of uh, surface-to-air missiles that they might need for uh, their air defenses um and a number of other things again if we don't if we don't want to be in the war we have to help them fight it and if we don't want that war to leave ukraine we have to help them fight it and win it there and those are really the two choices but i think we also need to have the kind of third category in mind which is if this does get worse if putin does decide for not just a long bleeding war But something he tries to do to end it, or if he's trying to seem to provoke NATO to take the war outside, if it looks like he's looking at the Baltics or another target, Finland or Sweden, what are we willing to do in the Russian mindset of escalating to de-escalate? Like, how do you show you are willing to use force enough that it will end it? And I just don't think anybody's thinking through those options right now because we just want this to end, (laughs) which is fair. Nobody enjoys uh, war, but – Uh, we need to be very clear-eyed about what we're looking at and what we've seen so far, which is Putin has taken every risk that we did not expect him to take.
0: We'll leave it there for now. Much more is mentioned. Greatpower.us. Molly McHugh, always (laughs) appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, There you go. That's uh, Mullen McHugh, lead writer at uh, GreatPower.us, writer and lecturer on Russian influence and information warfare, senior advisor with the Stand Up Republic Foundation, former advisor to Georgia's former president. Uh, So some some really interesting perspective on where we're at here, kind of at a a crossroads in that this has gone maybe a lot better than we'd hoped it would in terms of the Russian advance stumbling, the Ukrainians putting up a remarkable fight. In terms of the international consensus on economic sanctions, sanctions that have really hit the Russian economy hard, collapsed the value of the ruble, shut down the stock exchange, and much more fallout to come. But we can't pat ourselves on the back just yet. We can't celebrate uh, a victory just yet. We can't put up that mission accomplished banner just yet. Right. And so there, there's more that needs to be done. But the Ukrainians have created an opportunity for themselves, for us as well. And we need to help them fulfill that and get all of this uh, over the finish line. So, yes, uh, definitely uh, an important moment in all of this. All right. We'll take a break here. A lot to get to still this afternoon. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063, in Calgary, 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back after this. US President Joe Biden announcing that the US is going to ban Russian oil and gas imports. Now, it's a pretty significant announcement. The timing of all of this is, is important, too, uh, because we have major global players attending this Sierra Week conference in Houston. That includes uh, Alberta's premier and energy minister. Yesterday in Houston, uh, Premier Kenny called Joe Biden's announcement an earthquake. He said, quote, I think it is the beginning of a potential global realignment in how we supply energy. And I think we're going through that right now. What could be a potential global realignment, as the premier describes it, brought on, obviously, or at least accelerated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine? So what does this all mean to other energy producers? What does this mean to Canada? Obviously, in the short term, we are seeing uh, an even further distortion in the market uh, between supply and demand. And we're likely to see some further price shocks, although we did see oil trading a little bit down today, still well above $100 a barrel. Uh, Certainly, the Americans are going to be looking to see who else can add to global supply to try to bring the price down a little bit more, and who more specifically can supply the United States. Is that Canada? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about the impact this decision could have, what this realignment might mean, and what this all represents in the short term to producers here in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon someone else who was down in Houston. Uh, Tristan Goodman joins us, president of the Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. Tristan, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks very much. Look forward to the conversation.
0: Well, and just imagine some of the conversations yesterday. You've got all these major players in in Houston. Uh, The the announcement comes down from the U.S. president. What was the reaction like? What was the conversation like yesterday around this? Well, I mean, the the conversation
2: is obviously shifting before us. Uh, I I think it's very clear that there's going to be significant changes in the energy landscape. Uh, Security has, security supply has shot uh, right back to, um, right up to one of the top priorities there, obviously, along with continuing to move forward on, on the uh, various aspects related to uh, renewables and the climate components. So it's, it's now, uh, a, a, in one sense, a constructive conversation on how do, we, how do we balance all of these components and where do we get new supplies?
0: Well, I mean, you think of a you know a moment like this, you know, an announcement like that yesterday, but just this this whole moment we're living through—it's hard to appreciate history while it's happening before your eyes. But is it possible to put any perspective on just how significant this all is?
2: It, yeah, there's no question. This is from a geopolitical, large perspective, it is awfully significant. Um, most of us actually have not gone through this sort of. Uh, large change in our lifetimes. They are dramatic. Related to energy, obviously we're going to have to look at how we continue to focus on making sure Albertans, Canadians, and also globally, particularly now our allies, and they are now very much allies. We have some pretty uh, strong alignment here across the Western world uh, in its defiance of some disgusting acts occurring from Russia. And I think we can see that energy will play a major role in that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to have to. Where does that, that, that leave a um, you know producing country like Canada? Uh, at least in the short term, for example, Justin, to what extent are we able to increase our output, increase production, increase exports? How realistic is a greater Canadian role here in the short term?
2: So there's no question Canada can play a greater role. It is not because we can't bring supply on as quickly as perhaps we'd like. Um, in the short term, we really are adding small amounts, but we can we can play a part. And when, mm-hmm. when many sort of hands come to bear, it makes light work. So I do think we have a role to play uh, in the short term. It's not going to be as large as perhaps... Uh, is required, but there is uh, there is a, a significant uh, or noticeable piece we can we can endeavor to provide there, both on the oil side as well as actually the natural gas side. That's just, it's really about two products here,
0: right? And and I mean, obviously, you know, any expansion in production that requires time, that requires investment, the the capacity to move that project that that requires the same thing. So, what's it going to take in in the shorter term or the medium term, even to to be creative, I suppose, in in addressing both sides of that, the production and and the the shipping capacity?
2: So there's a few things immediately we have to think of. I mean, if you think of something locally, we've seen some actions from the Alberta government uh, related to gas rebates uh, and uh, different taxation. So you've got this uh, natural gas rebate program. We do have an affordability issue at home, And then we have to look at, more broadly, how do we start to expand while dealing with that affordability issue, looking at the underpinnings of that, which is really a basic supply and demand issue here. And you will find, probably through additional increases in production, um, immediately people will respond a little bit and try to bring on additional capacity. And we are also able to to a degree increase our refined product there will be some opportunities to support europe quite frankly in in effectively bunkering refined product in that country they will get concerned if they have enough refined products so it's it's about production but it's also about that refined product as well and it's it's a blend in the short term it's not a silver bullet by the way it's in combination with our other allies around the world
0: when, when you boil it down to, you know, at the company level, and I can just imagine, you know, what a lot of your members are, are going through here, the whiplash of, you know, some really tough years to all of a sudden this, this whole new situation that, that's now unfolding before our eyes here. Uh, how cautious are our companies being right now, but also looking at, you know, potential opportunities here? I mean, you know, what kind of decisions are being made at, at the corporate level? So I think there
2: were opportunities, actually, just because the energy narrative, narrative had shifted a bit. So the way people talked about and invested in traditional energy, you know, every company is looking at renewable options. But we're sort of going through this, um, this movement or this change in real time. And so we oh, yeah. still have to make sure we continue to produce for a very extensive period of time oil and gas and there are people are looking at those opportunities to do that so they were doing that before however in the same vein i think your comments are are correct i think it is people are cautious we we want to make sure we're moving in alignment with governments across this country and also more broadly that how they want those those developments to occur they have to be in alignment with what government expectations are and we sort of fit into that so yes production will you know increase to a to a degree but i think there is caution as to how much of that is being demanded and how will that occur so people um investors and also company executives will still remain you know there's still uh, a degree of uh, of uh durability around being responsible i guess you'd say here uh, yeah. as to how quickly and that may actually be a bit of a problem over the time there may need to be some encouragement to put money back in
0: when we look to to policymakers and governments you know in, in the role that they have here certainly I, I would think you know from from a federal government perspective making it known that hey you know canada's at the table we're prepared to be a part of this solution i think uh, that that 's probably part of what what you 're looking to see and hear from government in the coming weeks but but what else do we need in terms of of leadership or or policy from governments right now?
2: So I mean the short term and the midterm we 're going to need governments, and I think actually the federal government and and the province have both indicated this. The province has a number of files that are that are moving forward and have genuinely supported. Uh, the development and jobs, quite frankly, within the oil and gas business in Alberta, and specifically Calgary. And then the federal government has signaled very clearly, I believe the Prime Minister actually uh, spoke about this recently, that um, the reality is that Canada will be there with necessary resources to support our allies, and that could include um, increases in oil and natural gas production. So That's a good signal. A lot of this is about um, the narrative and, and investors, uh, oil and gas folks that, that run these companies do pay attention to what governments are saying. They really genuinely listen and they make business decisions based on, on certainty around what, uh, what government decision makers are saying.
0: Well, we'll see what uh, happens in the days and weeks ahead here. Much more at explorersandproducers.ca. Uh, Tristan, really appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. All the best. Thanks very much for the time. You as Take well. Care. Take care. Uh, Tristan Goodman uh, down in Houston, along with a lot of other players uh, in the oil and gas industry. He is uh, executive director of the uh, Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. So some perspective from him president rather the explorer and producers association of canada explorersandproducers.ca so it it could be tricky in the shorter term to really significantly increase production and output you know a lot of what's existing operations are already running you know pretty close to full capacity and decisions about expanding that are are not decisions that can be made you know overnight but hopefully look i mean we, we need to recognize the reality of the situation And I think there's almost a a duty, almost an obligation on Canada to look at how we can do more. All right, welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, An announcement this week from uh, Chorus Entertainment certainly has Alberta talking, and it raises some interesting questions. To what extent do we expect our political leaders to be accessible? So the average Albertan have an opportunity to put a question directly to the premier. And under what circumstances? Is it realistic that you would call the premier on his cell or at his office? No, probably not. Um, But if the premier is willing to make himself available in other circumstances, is that an opportunity that should be grabbed, that should be seized? Which brings us to the announcement uh, that starting this Saturday, 10 a.m., on this radio station, you will have an opportunity to hear and to talk to the premier. New show is being launched that's called Your Province, Your Premier. Joining us to talk more about how this all came together, what the idea is behind this new program, is Regional Program Director John Voss. Rob, thanks for
3: having me on. I'm good. I'm good. I mean, you're hitting at the real core of the issue and question is... What access should everybody have to key political leaders like Jason Kenney? And that's at the, the root of this. That is the foundation that has a real attractiveness for us as radio stations is that opportunity to yes on a, a regular basis, ask the premier questions about the issues that impact Albertans day in, day out, that frequent and consistent availability. But then also to provide that conduit, that chance for our audience to ask questions that they may have. And I think that's, that's a foundational piece that they work for us. And we should have the opportunity to speak to them. And so this, that's what this is going to afford.
0: Yeah, and look, I mean, you know, the, the, the airwaves are powerful. Being able to, to uh, speak directly to Albertans is powerful. And, and, you know, the UCP as an entity... Uh, other political entities they realize that and and they they can buy advertising as as political entities do but this is different right so explain to people what this is and how this is all going to work well let me back up and and just
3: kind of give you some of the genesis of it this notion this idea of doing a regular show with the politician is is not the first time ever on this radio right. station Harkening way back to Ralph Klein's days, we did a regular talk to the premier. It was called show. We've had uh, a show with the mayor, a regular show that affords us and gives us that chance to speak directly to the people in government that impact our lives. And I think that is really foundationally an important thing. So in the course of, okay, what does this look like? How does, it, how does it roll out? Let me, let me be clear, and you're, you're as aware of this as anybody, but we have a, a fair degree of sophistication in bringing guests into studios, speaking to them or talking to them on the phone, uh, asking questions, hard questions tough questions and then also allowing affording the opportunity for our audience to weigh in and provide and ask questions those things that we do day in day out are going to be the key tenets of this show this isn't an hour here Jason Kenny please tell us all the things that you you think are so great about your government and what you've been doing it's going to be hosted by Wayne Nelson Wayne's going to ask the questions that are most pertinent the, the topics that are pressing in the the news cycle of a week but then also be that connection for our audience to do the same because we, we like that's central to i think us allowing folks to talk to the the, the individuals that impact our lives in such a you know profound way
0: and and the premier knows that, right? And this is part of the deal. This isn't, you know, an hour of patting the premier on the back. This is an hour of potentially some some tough or, or awkward questions even for the premier.
3: Yeah, and, and the thing that, you know, that, that it came together now, there's been some conversations about, okay, the timing of it, and, sure. you know, there's weeks away, and he's in the midst of a leadership review. Well, I would say that, look, what a what a perfect time for our audience for people in this province to ask him about his record to really go after the idea that all right are you the, the the best person to lead the conservatives and lead the province let's remember he's the premier and so in in the scheme of things it's always good to go to the per the Person at the top of the heap to ask the questions, then you know get after the the issues. You know, in the distant, uh, this is probably in June. This is the June of last June of twenty, I should say. Yeah. The idea of doing a show uh, with the premier has come up a, a few times, and we, I had an appetite to do it then, and it just just didn't transpire. And so, hmm. probably about uh, three or four weeks ago, the conversation got restarted, and and the experience. That I had in the past and the appetite to say, hey, audience, this is this is what talk radio is about, is that you get to talk directly to the people that are impacting our lives. I said we should we should reignite that this conversation. We should do this.
0: Right. And obviously, look, you don't speak for the Premier. You can't or I can't speak to what's going on in his head. Whatever reason he had for for being reluctant in the past or why he's more open to it now, I I guess that's that's on him. Right. So we can't really speak to to his motivation. But the idea is the same. And as you laid out, this this is how it's going to work. So whatever he might see in, in the value of doing that, I guess that's on him. But from our perspective as an organization of what we do and what we provide, as you say, this is very much in keeping with that.
3: Totally. And you know, they, they, there are other politicians that have perspectives about what's going on in the province. And as it is, we provide them a venue to speak to, you know, the the topics of the day. Uh, but there is something hmm, preeminent about talking to the premier. And I think that Albertans should be afforded that opportunity.
0: Now, What's the the plan going forward here in terms of at least what's been agreed to? How long we we see this continuing for? What happens if he's no longer premier in in a month from now? What what about that side?
3: So uh, like as long as he's premier, we'll do the show, and and you know you, we got into this discussion conversation about okay well. Do you wait until after the leadership and then do do we measure whether, you know, he had a strong enough mandate? Do we do it then? And I have come back pretty consistently to the idea and notion that um, he's the premier. And as long as he is the premier uh, and the leader in the province, we're going to do this show. And should that change, I'll be open and amenable to doing it with whoever might move into that role.
0: All right, so it all kicks off this Saturday, 10 o'clock, Saturday morning, each and every Saturday morning, your province, your premier, right here on this radio station. John Voss, appreciate you making some time for us here.
3: Thanks for uh, having me on, Rob.
0: All right, there you go. That is uh, John Voss, Regional Program Director for uh, Chorus Entertainment, Uh, so 770 CHQR, 630 CHED, uh, 10 a.m., Saturday mornings. your province, your premier. Uh, So two familiar voices, one maybe a little more familiar than than the other, but uh, Wayne Nelson, Uh, who's certainly uh, got a long history in this industry, and uh, he'll be hosting this with Premier Jason Kenney. So an opportunity to talk about the big stories of the week and to take your phone calls. Maybe you have a question for the Premier about a big story this week. Maybe you have a question for the Premier about something that goes back even further, or a question uh, for the Premier about something that hasn't even come up at all that you think he needs to address. This is that opportunity. So, Obviously, as I said at the outset, this has certainly, you know, sparked quite a conversation in Alberta this week uh, around this this model, I guess, or this idea of having that that accessibility. Does the premier gain anything from this? Well, maybe at some level he sees that potential. And I suppose from a politician's perspective, any kind of invitation to, to go on a show or, you know, to do a news conference or to speak on a certain topic entails some benefit and some risk. Albertans expect you to answer questions, to talk about things, to explain what you're doing. And I think Albertans do appreciate at least the opportunity to, to put something directly to a political leader. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob and you can email me Rob at 770chq.com Talk to you next time.